episode 231, Pharmaceutical Contracting, PBMs, Pharmacies, Employers, and the HHS Rebate Proposal, What You Need to Know Now. My guest today, AJ Loy Akino, CEO at Capital RX. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Will the HHS proposal materially impact pharma's ability to in air quotes, pay to play on PBM formularies. So we have that HHS proposal that is now at the stage where they're trying to figure out how to implement it. And so what's at stake right now is that implementation flowchart and who exactly is involved in adjudicating the something like $186 billion in potential chargebacks. Since any middleman who gets themselves involved in any flowchart of this sort takes a buck, there is a massive land grab opportunity that all these heretofore hidden players are battling over. My guest today, AJ Loy Akino, CEO at Capital RX, can shed light on the hidden complexity of what goes on in the dark middle of a pharma drug transaction and contracting. That is very relevant right now. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, AJ. Great to be here. The HHS plan to remove the safe harbor from the rebates that pharma is currently paying to PBMs to buy their way onto formularies. The intention, obviously, of this endeavor, this proposal, is to make the transaction more transparent. Yeah, I think just quick background, you know, in February of 19, you know, obviously HHS came out and said, We'd like to eliminate the anti-kickback statute, you know, better known as the safe harbor for payments to Medicare, Medicaid. And the reason for this is over time, obviously, with drug inflation, the consumer has felt and borne the brunt of more and more cost. So I think what was trying to be developed here was a way to get the actual rebate dollars to the patient. I think it was a, you know, overall a, a good plan. I think it was a uh, necessity. I think, uh, obviously, evolutionary change is important. But this obviously led to confusion and what I call kind of the greatest financial land rush, if you will, in the pharmacy supply chain. It you know, will quite possibly become you know, one of the greatest financial windfalls for whomever claims control of this process. And we could talk about that some more. Yes, let's do so. So Alex Azar and HHS put this proposal forward, and that was in mm -hmm. February, as you mentioned. But just recently, they came out with a flowchart that shows, all right, well, if the rebates that pharma pays to PBMs are no longer going to be allowed, this is how the process is going to work. What does that flowchart look like, which was released recently, I think? First, starting from where we are, which is if you think about it today, the PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers are you know, negotiating directly with the pharmaceutical manufacturers for rebate dollars. What's being proposed is we're changing the term rebate to a chargeback. It's going from kind of a two-party system. It's the PBM to the manufacturer to a multi-party system where 
The PBM will still play a role, most likely, in negotiating different contracts based upon purchasing power. And then you're going to have a variety of people that may act as the ultimate intermediary to control this payment workflow. And you know, I think it's important to kind of think about it. Today, the PBM is collecting this money from the manufacturer. They're in charge of any reimbursement. But what's being suggested is instead of it being post-adjudication, you know, now it's going to happen at the point of sale. And at the point of sale, you have a pharmacy that suddenly is put in the middle of all of this. And the reason why this has become an important thing to think about, this chargeback, instead of it being at the old WAC, the wholesale acquisition cost for a brand drug, What's being suggested is there's a chargeback, is that, you know, actually we're going to reduce this. So you're going to buy it, the pharmacy, quite possibly at the higher price. And then once the transaction happens, that it could be 30 days or 60 days or 180 days, a payment will come to the retailer to make them whole, if you will, to make up the difference between what the lower price is that's now being made available to the patient and what they actually acquired the drug for, the acquisition cost. So for 60 to 90 days, then we've got a, if it's an independent pharmacy, obviously, I mean, even if it's probably a big pharmacy, this is material. For however long the payment takes to come through, that pharmacy has paid out money or give, paid out a, given out a product that they paid yep. for. The money that they collected is less than the cost of the product they distributed. So from a cash flow perspective, this matters. Yes, it could. And I think to compare it to something that exists today, if I were to kind of put my old coupon manufacturer hat on when I used to work and administrate in the couponing side of the business, when we Look at the coupon process. The pharmacists used to and still do, the independents in particular, say, you know, I've run 500 of your coupons. <laughs> when am I going to be paid? And if it's taking $100 or $50 off, you know, these are several thousand dollars, tens of thousands of dollars that they could be accumulating. And let's just think about this. And this is just kind of a broad estimate. If coupons are used on 20, 25% of transactions at the register, the point of sale at retail, think about the chargeback process. It's going to be on all brand drugs, pretty much. So now you've got 100% coupons effectively. Who's paying that chargeback? Is that the pharma company that now has to figure out how to pay? I don't know how many pharmacies there are in the United States, but they have to have a vendor agreement with every single pharmacy or who's sitting in the middle there? Well, I think that's kind of the interesting part of solving for this proposal, which is who does sit in the middle. And I go back to this becoming a very significant moment in pharmacy supply chain industry, because whoever ultimately chairs this is going to be in control of billions of dollars. And when billions of dollars are flowing through someone, obviously, they're going to take a fee for obviously administrating that service. And so who is in charge of this payment workflow? So one suggestion is the PBMs themselves. Large PBMs, CVS, Cigna Express Scripts, United Optum obviously have these relationships and already have a payment workflow in place with pharmacies, since obviously they need to reimburse the pharmacies for the payer 
paid portion or employer paid portion of transactions. So they already have a workflow in place. They could be still the administrator of this process, which is kind of interesting. The other options are around quote unquote third party entrance. One entrance might be wholesalers, wholesalers like McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, Cardinal. Their role in this today is they're supplying the pharmacies, that they have relationships with the retailers. And since they're selling the drug at a, a WAC or wholesale acquisition cost, then they would be the best party to remit the payments. So collect from pharma and pay the pharmacy. And maybe if they were willing to go a little bit at risk for a fee, it could accelerate that payment workflow back to the end pharmacy. Another option is the switch. People always ask me, what, what is a switch? You know, think of like an old movie where you see an, an operator literally patching a line from one call to another. That's kind of the role of a switch. It's, it's rather antiquated, probably no need for it in the kind of modern internet, but it plays a significant role. What's interesting is I mentioned before that the wholesalers are possible third-party solutions for this. Well, who controls the switches in the United States? It's McKesson. McKesson, probably through their Relay Health product, is, I would have to estimate, 80% of all prescription transactions. And then Change Health, which is partially owned by McKesson, last I checked, is the other 20% effectively. There's a couple independents out there, but they don't really have meaningful market share. But it's important to look at and why the switch? Well, the switch is in between these transactions. So they're already playing an, an integral role, the switch in specific transactions, be it Medicare, commercial transactions with couponing even. So they have visibility to the patient pay and the plan pay. So they could easily obviously create the dynamic chargeback. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute because there's some issues with this whole chargeback philosophy. Another entrant that could be thought of is a bank. FinTech might become involved. You know, where there's money, there's a bank. And maybe a bank would like to play that role. I haven't seen too many banks, at least to my knowledge, step up and think about this. But, you know, there's obviously some highly innovative organizations out there that maybe after this podcast might say, hey, like, wait, maybe we should be part of that multi-billion dollar transaction. Yeah. So, OK, so we've got four potential ways that the HHS proposal could be implemented. And to be fair, it could be a fifth or a sixth. And you're going to say, well, wait, who could that be? It could be a government contract. PwC could be like, hey, I do work for the government. Maybe you need a good firm that could, you know, cover this or an Accenture. Or is it like a, a Lockheed Boeing? You know, I'm a defense contractor. And you know what? I should be involved. You never, <laughs> you never know. But when there are tens of billions of dollars of money, it is enormous. If I had to put a number on the chargeback, it's 150 billion plus of money every year. And it's growing. And so the question becomes, who's in charge of it? Well, that would be probably one of the single largest contracts in history. Yeah. So let's recap the potential players in the land rush that probably just initiated as we consider who is going to have the ability to play the role of paying pharmacies, because everybody that's involved takes a dollar in the middle. That's one yep. of the issues that we have. So when you're talking about dollars of this volume, even if somebody takes a fraction of a percentage, it's a ton of money. Okay. So first contender, we've got PBMs themselves. 
Yep. A second contender is we've got the wholesalers. Mm-hmm. Uh, third contender is the switches. And, mm-hmm. you know, just sidebar, uh, McKesson controls the majority of switches and they also are a wholesaler. So I would like to see the increase in their lobbying budget these days. <laughs> um, number four, we've got banks, fintech, you know, somebody who's outside, in quotes, air quotes, the industry who, who starts to step in and takes over. And then fifth, we've got potentially a government contractor. So, you know what, before we dive into each of these potential options and and maybe some of the pros and cons of each one, let me just ask you this, AJ, based on your experience at this juncture, the HHS proposal only pertains to uh, CMS paid Mm -hmm. transactions. So that would be Medicaid, Medicare. What's the likelihood that this is going to spill over into commercial? I think it's almost a certainty because it's very difficult to have a two system process. I mean, think about how complex supply chain is already. If suddenly you're, let's just say a retail pharmacy is, I have one pricing schedule for Medicare, Medicaid purchasing. I have another schedule for commercial, even PBMs. It just becomes extremely cumbersome. If I had to compare it to something, I would kind of compare it to the AWP, average wholesale price rollback from 2009, where FDB was putting hotspot saying that they were overinflating some drug prices. So there was like 400 plus brand drugs that were possibly being overinflated. And so we had to have a rollback in the AWP price. And it was chaos, you know, for some level, because you had this pre and post rollback. And, you know, what I don't think anyone wants is this pre and post HHS that only works on some kind of commercial plans and other government plans it doesn't work on. So I definitely see it moving very quickly because if these large entities are going to invest in processes to administrate the chargeback, I genuinely believe that it's going to move to both commercial as well as Medicare, Medicaid. Is it HHS's intention to select, you know, like right now they're taking suggestions from yep. any lobbyists that can get in the door and they're going to pick one of the the five or maybe there's something that we haven't thought of. But where we are right now in the continuum, and it's at the end of May 2019, is that HHS is trying to figure out, OK, they had this proposal. They want to implement it. How exactly are we going to do that? Is that where we are right now? Yeah, I think that's it. You know, I think sometimes you hope that the industry self-corrects itself and that group or trade association kind of emerges from the mists and becomes the perfect choice. But I think because it's such a large sum of money that there's going to be some very, very strong opinions as to who should be in control. And You know, I think that even if you look at PBMs, especially the large ones, they're very crafty, which is the PBMs themselves create wholesaler opportunities where they themselves are purchasing groups. Even when we say wholesaler, ABC, Cardinal, and McKesson would like to think that just means them, but I think the PBMs would make a, a strong argument that they purchase drugs directly and perhaps they are wholesalers. So if we're talking about option one, in which basically we just stick with the PBMs to, is the correct term, adjudicate the chargeback. Mm -hmm. So let's just say that PBMs remain the main player here. 
PBMs make money in a whole bunch of different ways besides just taking rebates from pharmaceutical manufacturers. Do you want to talk a little bit about how, if they're crafty, as you say, which they are, to expand their control under this mm-hmm. proposal? If you think about the three largest PBMs, CVS, Cigna Express Scripts, and United, what they all have in common is they're publicly traded and represent 78 to 80% of all prescription transactions in the U.S. So it's effectively an oligopoly. When you look at the big three, what you have to remember is they have no real more market share to attain. It's not as if like, well, I could expand globally. This is really a U.S. healthcare system issue. So when we're just looking at pharmacy benefit managers, you know, the only way at this point that they can kind of make Wall Street happy is, if you think about it, is to meet or exceed earnings. So there's no way they can go backwards. They can't suddenly say, hey, we were enjoying 50, 60, 70% of our earnings came from rebate spread and admin fees and price protection. You know what? Let's just forget all that and just move forward, they would be obviously punished by Wall Street. So I think back to their motivation, I genuinely believe that the PBMs are going to do everything in their power to maintain the status quo of revenue. You know, how does that work? And I think it's going back to, well, if the wholesalers are going to be involved, well, now I'm a wholesaler. If it's going to be the PBMs, well, I'm still in charge. And if I'm in charge, I can still create policies and programs. It's funny, if someone asks me the only way to fix this hidden revenue stream between PBMs and manufacturers, I'd make it illegal for PBMs to take a single dollar from a manufacturer. I mean, that just settles it once and for all. You just can't take any money from manufacturers. Because the problem is, they might say, you know what, let's just say the switch controls it. The PBM says, you know, I'm doing some work with you. We're consulting on something. I think you owe me some money. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing an, a clinical access study. I think you owe me some money. It's very difficult if you always have a hand in the pocket of the manufacturer as the PBM. It makes it very difficult. Now, no one is going to listen to myself as a smaller PBM. The reason why I advocate for it is because I think we need a much more transparent system. And you know what I'm fearful of is a lot of these systems don't really address for what I would say full transparency. And, you know, let's just get an example of this. Someone says, well, if the chargeback is at the point of sale and the patient's getting it, you know, isn't it clear as day? And I go, well, no, because it's not standardized. So you could have two different patients or employers in a plan and they could have two different chargebacks based upon the dynamics of their plan, the size, different lines of business. And so because there's this variability, where there's variability, there's variable profitability. And so I think that the quote-unquote chargeback system, although it has merit, and I think it's trying to help the patient, the real murk here is who has control over the money. And I think if you're a PBM, you kind of have a different kind of charter. The, the PBM should be making decisions based upon efficacy and outcome and lower net cost. And once you have your hand in the bucket or the pocket of pharma, these kind of decision processes become blurry. What variability also does is it makes it really tough to audit. Because if I'm an employer and I just get a spreadsheet that says, okay, well, this is how much chargebacks or whatever your employees got, there's no baseline. So there's nothing to compare it to. So you don't know what good looks like. You've hit on something that's very important that we should remember here. It's not just the audit. It's not just the variabilities. 
if it drifts to the commercial side, which I think it will, what's going to happen, and a lot of employers have not even thought about what I'm about to say, is it's going to nullify every employer PBM contract. Because almost every PBM contract has in it a clause that says if there's any regulatory change, then my rebates go out the window. And now you're talking about variability on a whole different dimension, <laughs> which is who's to tell me what I am due and what is fair? And, you know, someone will say, well, the consultants will help with this process or, you know, the PBMs will be fair. And I'm going to say, well, unfortunately, that's not historically going to be a beneficial moment in history. Question about that, because would the employer be receiving anything at that juncture from the PBM? Because the benefit should allegedly be going to the employees. How do you know that the chargeback that patients are getting, be it commercial or government, how do you know that, you know, if I'm a patient, how am I supposed to know that I got the correct amount? And then like, who's checking that? Like, is that part of the role of this intermediary? Well, that's just it. You know, it's the classic fox watching the hen house where if it's the PBM and they control the plan, does that seem like a good idea? Maybe, uh, maybe not. Even the wholesalers, they are the ones that are supplying the drugs. And again, they have views into this process as well. And, you know, as I'd like to point out, the switch is controlled by one of the wholesalers. So, I mean, the three most likely solutions roll back to an oligopoly, the PBMs, a monopoly, the switch, or an oligopoly, the wholesalers. They really aren't great options at the end of the day, and they all come with their own kind of self-interest. So the current relationship between pharma and PBMs is that they pay to play. And maybe I'm saying that with a very broad stroke. But is that still under any of these models? How possible is that? So if I'm a pharmaceutical company and I have a Me Too product or I have a product that doesn't really necessarily have demonstrable efficacy, but I've got big pockets and I want to pay to get on a PBM's formulary, is that still possible? You know, it's difficult to understand that fully. So you could make an argument that because PBMs are so close to the end payers, that they'll always have influence. And where you have influence, you can charge for that influence. So in one way or another, there will still be a formulary in the near term, I believe. You know, as far as, you know, do you ever get away from it? Do you ever get away from pay-to-play economics on a formulary? The answer is maybe. And I hate to say that because a lot of things have to fall into place. And it's not just the PBM industry, it's the consulting industry. I say sometimes that there are consulting groups out there that maintain the status quo of pay-to-play economics because you're looking at a rate card and you want the largest rebates and the largest discounts. And no one's thinking true lower net costs that if I consider a drug like Embril and it may have a lower discount and a lower rebate, and I look at a drug like Humira, which may have higher discount, higher rebate, you would think, oh, it's a better option, but the true lower net cost would be Embril. So why isn't it on a formulary or why isn't it being utilized more as kind of a first line defense is because it doesn't show up well in a spreadsheet. Because a PBM wants to say, hey, I've got this huge specialty rebate or huge brand rebate. And obviously, the consultant or broker wants to sell that. And so there's another party in here that's not really being discussed. And it's how do the 
consultants and brokers kind of react to this, which is, will it shake up the industry and we're going to move to true lower net cost and think about efficacy and outcome more and more value-driven approaches? Or is it still going to be a rate card shootout, which manifests and maintains this pay-to-play economics? If I'm a pharma company right now, is it business as usual for me? Can I still rely, you know, as pay for play, whatever, whether it's chargebacks or administrative fees or whatever you call it, it's still for the near future going to be enforced that, yeah, whatever business as usual for me. Yeah, I, I would like to say as a great example, I think the pharmaceutical industry has been part of the witness protection program for the better part of 18 years. And, and what I mean by that is, you don't want to step out of line because you could be assassinated by the PBM industry. And if you say the wrong thing or do the right thing, the PBM is going to show up and say, hey, I, I caught that interview where you were talking about our uh, kind of rebates and some of our payment structures. Well, guess what? You're off formula. And suddenly, if you think about it, you have three entities that each control roughly, call it 25 to 30% of the market. And suddenly someone says, you're off formulary. You're basically saying on the commercial line of business, you're about to lose a third of your access. Back to my witness protection program, no one wants to say anything. So, you know, obviously, it's been saying that they're, they're speaking out a little bit more. They feel as if maybe the government has their back and it'll be more difficult for PBMs to put significant pressure on them. I just see right now they're going to, on the surface at least, be business as usual. There might be a skunk works in the middle of you know, the pharma groups are saying, how do we work around this? And I hope they do. I hope pharma engages with more small mid-market PBMs like myself, because I think we can do something very unique. I think the same thing with retailers. Most retailers are fearful of PBMs as well. And we're starting to see on the retail side, it's been very beneficial is we're seeing much more thoughtful contracting and open-ended arrangements because when you have a PBM like us that comes in and says, I don't want to punish you, the retailer. I want you to take your full value and present it to the employer and their end members. They're like, I love this model. And I see retailers coming around more and more. And I think that's highly beneficial that I think a lot of retailers in the past said, you know, no one really cares about this transparency thing. Well, the reason why I think they said that is because the big three don't care about it. The big three PBMs don't care about it. I can make an argument that 80% plus of the market doesn't really care about transparency. And I think there's an opportunity. So I hope that pharma continues to look outside of the witness protection program and becomes bold, kind of reclaims some of their leadership position in the supply chain. Because if you look at kind of a stock chart over the last 18 years and you put any of the large manufacturers up, Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi, take your pick, you know, they're all kind of flat to slightly negative over this period. But then if you look at the largest carriers in the PBMs, they're up a thousand percent. And so who's been extracting the value out of the supply chain? I think pharma, this is one of their moments that they have been given to kind of take a greater leadership role. And I hope they do it. And I hope they engage with more small and mid-market PBMs to kind of break the status quo. This is how I'm distilling down what you have just said. If I'm a pharma company, there might be some downside risk here of basically thinking that I'm going to rely on pay for play with the big three 
PBMs heretofore. So not revising how I'm like understanding at a full level what the value is of my product, for example, to patients or continuing to develop a me too and hoping that they're going to have a super rebate strategy in order to bring it to market. There might be exposure in, in that from a downside. But I think what you're also saying is by Assuming that business will be status quo, they're also foregoing a potential upside to take advantage of and maybe, as you say, take a leadership role in the marketplace toward purveyors that are more transparent and can more accurately represent the value of their products. Agreed. If you think about it, who's writing the checks at the end of the day? It's the pharmaceutical manufacturers. So if you're writing the check, you know, I think you have to make some thoughtful bets. Yeah, obviously, you have to engage with the big three and continue down that path. But I think you need to make side bets with the small mid-market and say, what could we do together? You know, Because I know they're going to take fees and ask for kind of a tax on this process. But if I were to work with you directly, what would you do? And the answer is, I would give the full amount with no burden or administrative fee to the end payer. And I think that's important. I think that's where the industry needs to go. I I don't think we should have a U.S. healthcare system and pharmacy benefits in which people make money from hiding transactions or taxes. I think what should be is you see all the costs in the process And if you make a fee, it's because you're adding good service and outcomes and value. Although the pharma industry was, you know, like there was that congressional hearing recently where the the pharma industry was basically falling back on a a traditional talk track, which is to blame the PBMs for high drug costs. Yeah, there was nothing really shocking, I felt, in the testimony. I think they were saying what they had to say, which is, you know, what came first, the chicken and the egg? What came first, the price increase or the rebate ask? And I think if you look at the stock market over 18 years, I think people begin to question perhaps it wasn't pharma. And I'm not giving pharma a pass on anything, but I am saying that they were definitely a victim of a system where they basically had all their power removed from them. And I think they have this moment in history where they can take a thoughtful leadership role and look to create other pathways and other incentive models that are highly efficient and highly transparent, and really help benefit their end goal, which is get the drug to the patient at the lowest cost with the least amount of tax or burden from third parties. Is it education of the end user, which is ultimately the only solve for this? Because you've got these gigantic vested interests who are going to do what they're going to do. They're rational actors and they don't necessarily have a mission to help (laughs) American patients and the healthcare value in the system today. So they're going to get while the getting's good. Yep. I mean, I think it's a real question. You know, I go back to all the time, which is if we look at the consultant and brokers, it's kind of like tale of two cities. There are broker consultants that consult and have flat fees. And then there are broker consultants that are glorified marketing agents for PBMs, that they have coalition products that they get paid to market and sell and become their primary course or primary decision of where they want to put their employer clients because they get paid more on one product versus another. And This leads to bad behavior across the supply chain because it feeds into a system. If I choose this PBM and I get paid more for it 
And in order to get paid more for it, we're going to use bad economics, bad optics in which I can inflate rebates. And I'm going to turn a blind eye to this process because I'm monetarily invested in it. It feeds into the PVM maintaining this process and it goes up the supply chain through the wholesaler to the actual manufacturer itself. So, you know, it's kind of an alpha and omega here. We're talking about the alpha, which is the manufacturer is providing a rebate or chargeback and obviously changing that process. But we shouldn't overlook is the omega, especially on the commercial side, who is representing to the employers what is a good decision and how we evaluate quote unquote, value, price, and lower net cost. So if I'm an employer, what questions should I be asking right now of the brokers or consultants or whoever is helping me so that I don't wind up jumping from the pot into the fire? It's interesting. It's very difficult to ask a question right now because I think the first thing is, is this program, this proposed rule to eliminate safe harbor, is it going to cascade into the commercial market? I think yes. But then the question becomes, well, what am I asking as an employer? We don't know yet. I think what employers should be advocating for, and if they have access to regulatory officials or legislators, they should be asking for more transparency. And they should ask for better audit rights and more visibility into the process. Because if you think about it, the person who's paying the bill here is the patient and the employers and states and the federal government. They should be asking, I think, more questions. I feel like if we had to go through the you know, thousands of comments that you know, were in response to this proposal, vast majority of them are coming from entities in the supply chain. I bet very few were coming from employer groups. At least the ones I work with wouldn't even know how to be part of the response process. So I think it's right now, the question should be more directed to the people that have the ability to create regulatory oversight. And I think put pressure on the broker consultant as to what this means for them going forward, because it is overlooked, these relationships. It definitely seems like the good intentions of the HHS proposal, when tossed into the stew of profit-seeking entities who are very smart, they're going to figure out a way to take a buck. If what we're controlling here is the process and we're micromanaging the process, there's always a loophole in the process. Somehow or another, unless we figure out how to control the end game or we've got market forces that control what's going on in the middle? I don't know. What's your optimism level here that anything is going to fundamentally change? Let's look at the good. I think it is an overdue dialogue and discussion. So I applaud HHS for starting it. And I think their intention back to the primary goal was was noble in the sense that it's trying to help the patient. The problem is, is how we implement it. And it because it is this huge pot of gold, everybody wants to control it or everyone wants access to it. Because to your point and to my point is whenever you administrate anything, you have the ability to tax the system and obfuscate or create unnecessary opacity and complexity to maintain higher profit levels. So I think my optimism is around, I would hope, the employers asking more questions and trying to put more pressure back on the people that will make these decisions. 
regulatory officials, uh, legislators. I think it's important because if just left to these kind of three different groups to decide the outcome on their own, I think we're pretty much going to have a very similar system to where we're coming from. In fact, if you look at the workflows and you look at the flowcharts, it's more convoluted and more complex where it is today. Because of the cost of healthcare these days becoming unaffordable, and I've had several guests on the podcast saying, look, we're in an inflection point, not because any of the parties within the healthcare system believe we're at an inflection point. We're at an inflection point simply because Americans can't afford their healthcare, period. You've got employees who buy, the, you know, employers are the largest provider of healthcare in this country, writ large. So if you've got employers with employees who can't meet their deductible and basically are functionally uninsured, like that is the trigger causing this inflection point. What's wound up happening as a result of that, and AJ, I don't want to play right into your hands here, but there's, <laughs> but there's a growing group of, dare I say, middle people who are transparent and who are not taking hidden fees. And like, that's kind of the value proposition that's being offered. Do you want to talk a little bit about this kind of emerging? Do I want to say, I, maybe I'm optimistically saying a market force? How do all these pieces fit together? Higher cost sharing puts a burden on the patient. And a lot of employers never get to look at abandonment and adherence curves and the data around that. Because when a patient abandons, they don't really see it or talk about it with their PBM. In fact, it's not even billed. It's, it's a reversal. It's, a, it's noise in the background. But what they're missing is that patient now isn't taking their prescription. Is that going to be higher drug costs? Is that going to be more absenteeism? And there's obviously hundreds of journals that will say yes. But we don't look at it that way. We just look, hey, we won. We drove down pharmacy costs. And, oh, you know, yeah, sorry, you pay a little bit more, but it makes you a better consumer. And I agree to that to some level. Yes, you're a better consumer, but you still have to be able to afford your medication. You can't be like, hey, if you want your drug, it's $600 and eventually you'll get out of this hole in your deductible and you'll be fine. But the average American, when they're confronted with a $100 deductible or copayment, they're doing my cell phone bill, my gas bill, my car payment, whatever it may be. And so these other things, unfortunately, tend to take priority over your medication, which is why we see adherence rates in employer plans in the 70s, you know, which is effectively saying you got 20 days out of 30 days of medication. And that's probably not a good place for the U.S. healthcare system to be. But moving beyond that, we want to get back to transparency. You know, I think the system is overly complex. It's overly opaque. And, and the reason for that is spread pricing dominates the PBM industry. And you can't see that mechanism because PBMs that have traditional pricing show up and say, hey, it's free, my service. Well, nothing's free in life, but they say it's free. There's no cost. I just take a little bit between the pharmacy and you and the manufacturer. Don't worry about it. Well, I think that would be a fine process if you could see the spread. The thing that I kind of equate it to is once upon a time, the stock exchange, if you were to trade a stock, $1,000 of stock, you could pay $50 to $100 in commission. And then a company came around and said, hey, I'm going to do this for $19.95. And everybody laughed at it and said, no, no one wants that. But now it's the standard because you took a very complex and opaque process and you simplified it and made it accessible. And you actually created an entire generation of people that would trade stock that would never purchase stock directly because it became more accessible. And 
I feel like the prescription benefit industry, one of the reasons why our company exists and why we founded Capital RX was because when I was on the audit side and when I was on the procurement side, everything kind of bothered me about the system itself, that we did a great job on the procurement and audit side. There was no doubt about that. But what bothered me was about 70 to 80 percent of a PBM's revenue wasn't even contemplated in the four corners of an employer's agreement anymore. And with that level of inefficiency, how do we get at that? How do we help expose a lot of this kind of waste and inefficiency and self-interest? So we call our process a what we call clearinghouse model, where you have a counterparty that can see the transaction. So to say, hey, I get 100% of the rebates and I give it to you, I'll show you the transaction workflow. If we're paying back to a retailer, I'll show you the payments back to that workflow as well, that there's nothing burdening the process. And I think that's a great place to start because if you're not expending your time trying to manipulate or kind of maintain higher revenue through spread, you can now focus your efforts and resources on better service, better outcome, innovation, looking at ways to get back to the prior statement, which is, is this the right thing for a patient to have a $100, $200 copay? The answer is no, but I need to be able to demonstrate that through data and analytics back to the employer and educate them. And, you know, it's very frustrating. We'll reply to hundreds of RFPs this year, probably one or two or three. They might actually say, hey, as an employer, this is what we're trying to solve for. Most RFPs, you don't even speak with the client. You know, it's very interesting. I always say this to brokers and consultants. How much business do you win each year never talking to your client and just showing a rate sheet? It's all about optics of price. And this feeds into the machine of the supply chain. And what we're trying to bring this back to is price is irrelevant. As long as you could see as the employer what's being reimbursed and given to you, there really shouldn't be an argument about price. Really, what we should be focusing on is what are we solving for? Are you solving for better access, outcome, service, or is it price? But not just price and discount, but lower net cost. Do you want to manage your population? Do you not want to touch your population? Do you want to touch your plan design? These are questions that are never asked in an RFP. And you know the statistic I always use is one in 60 plans even change their plan design. Most employers are using plan designs that are seven years old. Yeah, and just interjecting there, there's podcast 206 with uh, Ashok Subramanian, and the title of that episode is, turns out, high-deductible plans don't drive high-quality, cost-effective healthcare. So the impact of not asking the questions that you're talking about and focusing solely on price is you don't actually reduce the price. No, it's I joke all the time that employers actually purchase office supplies more effectively than pharmacy benefits, because at least in an office supply contract, there's actually unit prices for paper and paper clips. In a pharmacy benefit contract, there's not a single price in it. Here's my concern as an employer and, and thinking of all the other employers that are out there. It's a really bad thing when you can't trust someone who you need to be working in your best interest, who has demonstrated repeatedly that they're not. Like that just it just sits really wrong with me and makes me very uncomfortable. Well, I think there's a misalignment. And the misalignment occurred when we kind of got to the end of the M&A PBM bubble. There's probably been 30 major M&A deals over the last 25 years. And 
in the end, we've basically created this oligopoly of three entities that control 80% of the transactions. And that, you know, last 20% are blues plans, regional carriers, and independent PBMs like myself. So the days of growing real market share is kind of at an end. And so that misalignment is around, I need to continue to grow earnings, but every time I grow earnings, it's coming out of the employer's pocket. And, you know, that's, that's a tough you know, process to digest. And people don't normally think about this. They're like, well, wait a second. That makes sense, AJ, what you're telling me, which is, you know, if they're kind of looking out for me, I, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but there's definitely a misalignment here. And, there, and, you know, there is mistrust, right, wrong, or indifferent. I think it's created by the opacity and complexity. You know, I always, I always find it fascinating that you need, you know, four or five subject matter experts to do a forensic audit, understand a PBM contract, provide the proper legal oversight, et cetera. It's very, very difficult to understand these workflows and, you know, these bucketed discounts and rebate schedules and offsets and classifications. And so I think the mistrust is because it's overly complex, but the industry likes complexity because it kind of hides the revenue stream. Uh, Harry S. Truman said, if you can't convince them, confuse them. (laughs) (laughs) Talk a little bit about Capital Rx, AJ. What do you have going on over there? We are a PBM based out of New York City. You know, we're called Capital Rx One because we do have this clearinghouse model, which is fully transparent and provides all parties visibility to the payment workflow. The other reason why we're called Capital Rx is because we believe in human capital is the most important asset for any company. And For some reason, we've forgotten that in the United States, where if you think about it, your medical insurance and your pharmacy benefit are really insurance policies for your your employees to show up to work. Because without your employees, you obviously don't function. You can't obviously drive more business or provide the operational or management needs for the institutional organizations that you belong to. And so what we try and focus on is we obviously already sit on the pharmacy data, and then we also ingest the medical data And we also ask for salary, payroll data, and sick days. And the reason why is it helps our clinical team not just create more effective programs back to asking a question and understanding your client, but we can track the results. So a great example of this, I would say, is diabetic population. Diabetic population is typically a top 10 cost category for every employer in the United States. Unfortunately, most diabetics typically sit in the high 60s from an adherence rate, which is pretty bad. So we may do something that's contrary to the industry, where the industry is racing to the bottom to say more deductibles, more coinsurance, higher rebates. We'll say, I want to do something kind of different here. I want to get that population of diabetics to a 95% adherence rate. And people will be like, well, wait a second. Isn't that going to cost us more money, AJ? And I would say, yeah, it's probably going to cost you 4 or 5% to your top end. And at that point, most HR directors might pass out. Um, but what you want to say is, well, let's look at this for a second. Three to four times the cost of pharmacy benefit is the medical cost. And we think by doing this, we're going to reduce chances of comorbidity, transference to higher disease states, as well as less episodic visits to the ER, et cetera, that are very costly. And we don't have to make that big of a change because this is three to four times the size of the pharmacy benefit. But let's just say we don't see it in there. The real benefit is when we start tracking sick days, which is if I could just carve back a quarter of a sick day, suddenly this program pays for itself three to one. And the reason for that, and people forget this all the time, is 
your salary cost is 50 to 60 times the cost of the pharmacy benefit. And really, what are we trying to solve for? Are we just trying to solve for how to reduce this bucket or this silo by itself, pharmacy benefits? Or are we truly trying to make the right decisions for our employees and help them genuinely become healthier and more effective in the workforce? I mean, I'll make a a broad bet to anyone who listens to your broadcast. I will bet a healthier company outperforms an unhealthy company any day of the week. Yeah, I don't know how that cannot be true, honestly. I think it's really easy to get sucked into marketing that fixates on a certain factor in an equation, but doesn't take a look at what the sum total of the equation is. Like you get some really weird, perverse incentives that don't ultimately uh, serve the end game very well. They increase one number at the expense of another. And at the end of the day, you wind up not improving anything. Agreed. A great example of this, again, from an employer lens that employers may not even know this exists or trust funds where they are confronted with these rate card sheets and they say, I've got I've got great pricing, even though there's no price on there. They're all kind of these bucketed discounts and rebates. But what I always like to point out when I do an employer uh, kind of presentation is I say, let's use something that we can all relate to. What's the price of gasoline in the United States? Someone might say three dollars and some change, depending upon which state you're in. Might be more, might be a little bit less, but there's a number. When I say, what's the price of amoxicillin, the room becomes very quiet, even with consultants in it. And the reason why, if you look at the list price, the AWP for amoxicillin through Medispan, it goes from $7 to $9 over 15 years. And this is for like a 20 count you know, prescription. But what's interesting is, you know, it's a half a percent of inflation on a drug that's been off patent for 35 plus years. And there shouldn't be much variability in a price at this point. But what's fascinating is if you start looking at MACLIS and even employer prices within the same PBM, you could have plus or minus 40%, 50% on that drug on the same day. The classic example of two employees in the same chain pay two different prices. And the question is why? And it's because what's so unique about the U.S. pharmacy benefit system, it's the only industry I know where the pharmacy buys its inventory and a third party tells them the price. makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, which might, you know, given the spread, have little bearing on what the drug actually costs. AJ Loy Akino, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. No, thank you so much, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.